I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. Today, I'm talking to FinTech pioneer Shamir Karkal, the founder and CEO of Simple, and now Scylla. Founded in 2009, Simple was one of the very first neobanks, meaning they offered banking services, but were not themselves a bank. Simple built the user experience in tech, but they partnered with someone else, Bankcorp, when they originally launched, to provide the charter. In 2009, when Simple was founded, it was not at all obvious that this was even possible. Simple helped prove that it was and then built a cult-like customer base in the hundreds of thousands. It's hard to understate how important this development of the neobank model has become for fintech in the decade plus. Today, there are 100-plus neobanks, 20-plus banking-as-a-service platforms, but the banking-as-a-service model is not just the story of neobanks. It's been one that's crucial to the growth of fintech, especially embedded fintech more broadly. So we're going to talk with Shamir today about what it took to build Simple and then also help pioneer this category. And like any good pioneer, Shamir is actually not finished today. He's founded Scylla, which is itself a banking as a service platform. We'll cover that as well as what Shamir sees in the future of financial services and why he thinks we're only 2% of the way there in terms of building transformative fintech platforms. Shamir, super excited to have you here. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here, Rex. So I want to start off at the very beginning of your fintech entrepreneurial journey. What's the career path that led you to end up deciding to start Simple in 2009? I started my career at the turn of the millennium, actually, as a software engineer. Came to the U.S. around 2003, then went to business school, and then I became a consultant at McKinsey. My first project ended up being for a payments processor, one of the giants in the industry. And that's where I kind of really got into payments and financial services. I ended up spending three plus years at McKinsey doing almost exclusively financial services, but broad, right? Everything from like cross-sell for banks in the US to country bailouts in the Middle East, right? And that was the time of the financial crisis. So suddenly mm-hmm. you went from trying to increase revenue to trying to rescue financial systems <laughs> in a very weird time for the world. And so in 2009, I was actually based in Brussels in Belgium. And at this point, school. you had a nice background. You had done both technology and you'd come to understand financial services through a variety of consulting engagements, which in 2009, there are not a whole lot of people understand both finance and tech. Yeah, it didn't seem like a very unique or unusual skill set. But now looking back on it, I think it was. Josh was my co-founder at Simple. He'd already worked at a mortgage startup, actually, in New York after business school. So he'd gotten to know about mortgages, and so had I And at McKinsey. We spent a lot of time talking about mortgages in the middle of the great financial crisis. So he then went and worked at a, essentially a hedge fund in New York, and that's where he got more and more into financial services and was like, hey, like this whole system is broken, and it's not really helping ordinary people achieve what they want. And it's definitely not tech forward. And really, the only way to solve this seems to be to start a bank. Who knows a lot about banking? Oh, my buddy Shamir, let me go talk to him. And that's where the genesis of Simple came together. I fell in love with the idea from like the time he emailed me, right? And I was like, if we could build a bank that didn't just use technology, but had technology kind of ethos at its core. And we built mobile apps the way technologists build mobile apps and and actually use technology to help customers achieve their goals. Wow, that would be revolutionary. And so I flew out to New York, spent some time with Josh in his basement, and we put together a deck, and and now here we are, right? Like 14 years later. And what did it look like in those early days in the basement to get started on building Simple? Because at that point in time, there are no banking-as-a-service platforms. There are no partner banks. There are very, very few fintech investors. Honestly, there's there are practically zero dedicated fintech funds. There's no deep pool of talent to pull from. So in those early days, what were the things you were working on building to set the foundation for Simple? The first and immediate problem was we could very clearly imagine how to build an app. Mobile development, which was just really taking off at that time, is different from web development, but it's not that much harder, right? Like that didn't seem to be the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge was like, how do you do this legally? At the same time, a guy called Satoshi created Bitcoin. 
This was 2009. And we kind of actually heard about it and looked at Bitcoin briefly, but we wanted to do something that was within the regulated financial system because yep. we felt that's where we could really change people's lives. And, and we didn't like going to jail. Like, I don't look good in orange. So the first idea I had was because I just pulled out an old McKinsey deck on how do you start a bank? And it said, look, take 10, 15 million dollars, go to Utah and register an ILC. That's the best charter. And buy a core processing system from one of the Pfizer, FIS, Jack Henry, and Bob's your uncle. You got a bank, right? And the McKinsey deck was not wrong. Between 2000 and 2008, every year mm-hmm. there were from 100 to 300 new banks started in the U.S. There was a whole industry called de novo banking. Kind of knew a little bit about it, but I got into it much more only to realize that between 09 till now, I believe there's like a dozen banks that have been chartered, right? So we quickly figured out in 09 that getting our own bank charter wasn't going to work. Pre-2008, people were starting banks, but it did take a pretty big slug of capital. And then you were locked into a certain kind of operating setup. Completely. Post-2009, very few, practically zero folks are starting banks. And even if you start when you still need that large slug of capital. And so yeah, the, you're the, looking the, for other ways of going about doing this. Exactly. Honestly, the, the large slug of capital wasn't necessarily that big a problem. We spoke to a lot of people in 09 yeah. and 10 who had a lot of capital and wanted to get into the financial industry, a lot of private equity yep. and hedge fund folks. It just wasn't an option back then, right? And so Josh and I were like, okay, when you think about it, we don't really need a charter because the charter of a bank is tied up in how balance sheet and management goes. And if you do that wrong, you can blow a bank up, as we have seen in the <laughs> in the recent past, right? But Josh and I weren't really doing anything innovative at all with balance sheets. In fact, we weren't even planning to do lending early on. For us, it was all about taking people's money and giving them tools to help them manage their money. Yeah. So it's really on the deposit side of the business. And all the innovation was in the UI layer, not in the balance sheet. Yeah. And so we were like, hey, maybe we should just go find a bank and, and partner with them. And we had a, an early investor, a guy called Jerry Newman, who suggested this. And that's what we set out to do in like late 09, early 2010. And we'd also raised, I think, like... 50, 100K of cash from Jerry and a few other angels. So I just moved to New York and lived down the road from Josh, and I would go work out of his basement. And the bank partnership you end up building, first with CBW Bank, later with Bank Corp, later with BBVA, that kind of partnerships becomes a template for the now, you know, 99% of the now 100 plus neobanks. But at the time, it wasn't exactly obvious what a bank partnership might look like or who the bank partners might be, right? This is 2009. There are not 20 plus banking as a service platforms. There are not 100 plus neobanks. So how did you go about defining that partnership, finding the banks? And first, maybe just how long did it take you to get that part of the build done? It wasn't obvious back then. I mean, the word neobank did not exist. Even the word fintech wasn't that common. A lot of people thought of themselves as just financial services. And there were no dedicated fintech investors. I started researching different ways of partnering with banks. We just started scanning the industry and being like, hey, which banker will talk to us? And as part of this process, I found the prepaid card industry. Now, prepaid Mm -hmm. cards had existed for a while already, for maybe about 10 years at this point. And they were a niche which served underbanked Americans, gave them... Green Dot um, being one of the large prepaid card issuers, and their partnerships with Walmart, Walmart being another big player in this space. I was like, well, the product isn't what we want to offer because it's not a general purpose reloadable prepaid card. What we want to offer is a quote unquote full checking account, right? With what sort of middle income Americans expect. But the industry structure is exactly what I want, right? There is a bank on the back end, which handles balance sheet and really prepaid cards didn't do anything innovative with balance sheets either. (laughs) They just needed a bank for regulatory purposes and as a place to keep deposits. There was a few processors in the industry who were just like the technology providers. And then there were all these program managers who were building the front end, right? And were like, hey, we actually go out and find the customers. We've designed and in many cases build the applications. We bring all these parties to the table and then we have this like tri-party agreement between a processor, yep. a bank and program manager. That sounds like exactly the structure that I need, but not yep. the product that I need. And then we also discovered this 
even smaller industry where some banks, Bancorp, I think was one of the main ones, would partner with essentially wealth managers, right? RIAs and IBDs and offer banking products through those RIAs and wealth managers where they would offer a full-fledged checking account. And in fact, a lot of wealth management-like services, like wires, for example, and they would do it in conjunction with those wealth managers. But in this setup, usually the bank was completely managing the technology, right? Mm -hmm. And they would do a little bit of the website design and there would be a little bit of branding, but it was all done by the bank's technology. And so this was not the structure I wanted, but it was the product I wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was like, wait, I need this product with this structure. And then if I can meld them together, I can take the industry structure of something that was offered to, you know, lower income Americans with the product that was offered to higher income Americans and then offered that to middle income Americans. That's what we eventually ended up launching with the Bancorp. What oh. year was the Bancorp launch? July of 2012, yeah. right. So basically three years to navigate what is largely a regulatory infrastructure consideration around using the pre-trade model, plus the bank corps kind of existing expertise in this area around their wholly owned white labeled services. But whereas you're like, now we will be the tech provider (laughs) and we'll do a pre-trade model with you. Exactly. And it was almost exactly three years between first email and launch was one week shy of three years. I want to back um, up to in those three years because you did raise money before launching. How did that work to go out and say, hey, I've got this idea about this thing I want to build. No one else has really built it. I'm, I've kind of going to use prepaid with someone and I like, probably will have a banking partner. Who did you talk to? Like, How did you convince them that this was a thing to do? Well, so we started pitching VCs pretty much as soon as I landed in, in New York, before I even moved there, actually. And I think we spoke to 70 plus VC firms between like summer of 09 and summer of 2010 and finally ended up getting two term sheets actually from first round capital and union square ventures at that point i would rate those two as the best early stage venture firms in the country but it was josh koppelman and finn barnes at first round and then albert wenger at union square both started talking to us and were very supportive from early on. They were also not willing to put in their capital in two guys in a basement with a deck. And, and so we did the standard route of going and talking to angels like Jerry and raised maybe three, 400K that way. And that allowed yeah. us to pay ourselves just enough to keep talking to banks and trying to put together the tech. And then a few things happened, which was Dodd-Frank happened in the summer of 2010. I think it got passed in like July or something, but it was being worked on from like April. And this was the big financial package that would fix the financial system. In 2010, Americans clearly knew that the financial system was broken. Occupy Wall Street was happening. And so Dodd-Frank was the big legislation that was going to fix the financial system. And the thing is, nobody could understand it. So first... You've got this idea of this thing you want to build. You've got the consumer demand to some extent, right? They need a new modern product with a modern user interface and user experience. You've now figured out some of the technology, which honestly probably isn't the hard part. You now have like a partnership model, but you also need a business model in terms of how this thing is going to make money. And Dodd-Frank actually points you to a business model that kind of challenges the existing banks. Completely. So Dodd-Frank was being talked about and if you were a, a newspaper anywhere in the country, you couldn't not write an article about Dodd-Frank for that entire like three or four month period. But at the same time, any journalist was like, this is just impossible. Like, <laughs> even, if I, even if I can understand it and figure it out, how do you translate like an update to like 90 years of regulation to the ordinary person, right? It's very hard to make it approachable and it's, it's even harder to make it interesting. Yeah. And imagine to a generalist audience in 2010, where everybody's pissed off with the financial system, but nobody understands how it works. So at this point, we had added a third co-founder, by the way. So we had added Alex Payne. And Alex was an early engineer at Twitter who had built the Twitter API platform and and was still working at Twitter uh, Mm -hmm. when he decided to jump ship. And so he was well known in the tech world. And he had, I think, 30 or 40,000 followers on Twitter back in 2010. So he tweeted out that he was leaving Twitter and going to Simple, and that got got us a burst of attention. And I think that's where Max from The Observer found us, and he wanted to write about us. And we were like, 
all the publicity we can get is good publicity. We don't we don't have any clue about how we are going to build this. We're still just beginning to talk to banks, but let's do it. And so he wrote this article and that set off this stream. You have to write about Dodd-Frank, which nobody will understand. But there's also this human interest story about two guys in a basement in Brooklyn who are going to change the banking system by building a new type of bank, right? Which story do you want to write about? <laughs> <laughs> and so we became like the the financial story of the moment. I remember I was down in LA to meet some investors and we opened the newspaper and that's the day that the LA Times had decided to put us on the front page of the business section. We got a huge amount of press in that Dodd-Frank, way beyond anything that like, you know, given the scale of company we were. And yeah. that I think led to a huge burst. We had a sign-up list for, and, and a website for like months at that point. And we got tens of thousands of people to sign up on that sign-up list. And that was, I think, what really got the VCs interested. For me, from the moment I read Josh's email, I was like, of course, there's demand for this. Like everybody on the planet wants this, yep. right? The only yep. question is, can we build it? <laughs> Even I didn't appreciate how hard it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be hard. But the demand side of it, I was like, of course. I mean, look at your bank. Then look at the simple app. Now look at your bank. Which one do you want, right? But the VCs really didn't see it that way. There was the VCs who thought there was no demand for a new bank. And there were the VCs who were convinced that it could never be built. But I think the amount of publicity we got convinced people that, yes, there was demand, right? And we'd made some progress. By the summer of 2010, we had term sheets from three different banks to sign a partnership deal and build simple. And that was what convinced the VCs, the kind of the publicity, the sign-up list, our pitch, of course, and those term sheets to actually get us our Series A, which was a Series A of 2.6 million in July of 2010, which, by the way, was above average for Series A's that year. <laughs> so great. You've got money in your bank account to build a neobank now, but you're still two or three years away from launching. Yeah. So would love to talk through the last things you had to do to get to launch. And then let's also get into launch what it looked like to build and go live with your first customers. So Dodd-Frank also, by the way, created a huge scare for us with the Durbin Amendment because yeah. from early on, we knew that interchange was going to be a big part of the equation for us, right? Now, we never planned to build an interchange-only model. We always planned to get into lending as well, and then also make interest margin on the deposits that we would raise for banks. Yep. But in 2010, interest rates were zero. We didn't realize how long they were going to stay yep. zero. Making any interest on the deposits was going to be not a source of revenue for a while. But interchange was a, a reliable source, except that the Durbin amendment in Dodd-Frank was going to kill interchange. And for a while, that amendment actually slowed down our fundraising completely. Prior to the Durbin amendment, Banks monetize off of debit card interchange fees. You swipe your debit card somewhere. The bank gets paid. That gets split with someone. In this case, you have a partner bank. The partner bank shares most of that interchange revenue with you. But the Durban Amendment was going to say you can charge much, much, much less to do that to the end consumers yeah. and the businesses processing those payments. Except, and this is what I think you're talking about, there's a carve out as long as you're a bank with fewer than $10 billion in assets. So your only viable business model at this point in time, because you can't do lending yet and interest rates are zero, is interchange. Dodd-Frank almost kills that business model, but then there's a carve-out specifically for you guys, which aligns with, I guess, the timing of your press announcement, et cetera. And once the Durban Amendment made it clear that banks below $10 billion were exempt, because all the partner banks in the, in the space that we were talking to, because they were all coming out of prepaid, were all below that threshold, well below it. So that made it clear that we had a viable business model. And in fact, it almost insulated that business model a little bit because now debit card interchange as a source of revenue was no longer going to be a big thing for the large banks, right? Like it had been for the previous few years. And so what Dodd-Frank really also did was it eliminated the OTS, the Office of Thrift Supervision, which people forget now, but it merged the OTS into the OCC because a lot of feelings in Washington, D.C., that of all the regulators who had messed up during the financial crisis, the OTS was the worst, right? And what the OTS did on its way out was to go out and give cease and desist letters to all the banks that they were working with. And I don't know exactly why, but a lot of the prepaid banks were OTS supervised, including like Metabank back then, for example. And so suddenly out of the three banks that we had term sheets from, two out of the three 
got cease and desist letters from the OTS and basically left the industry completely for a couple of years. And so we are like, well, we still have the Bancorp, right? Except that for the Bancorp, this happened to the entire prepaid industry, which was not huge, but was way larger than three guys in a basement in Brooklyn. <laughs> and so basically we went from being, I don't know, number five on the priority list for Bancorp to being like number 50, right? As the entire industry tried to move to just yeah. the one bank that was left in the space. Yeah. Today, when someone says Neobank, it's like, oh, not another Neobank. But there was a time when like, it was really, really effing hard to get started, right? Like you have all of these regulatory issues. You have all of these just like, why do banks want to work with you? Then you have this overlay of regulation. Then you have regulatory entities going in and out of business. You have key partners pulling out like a year or months before you want to launch. And so like there's just all of this turbulence in terms of trying to get this product to market, which today, if you're building something interesting in fintech, you're probably having a similar experience, different entities, different stories, different key people, but it's always going to be the case. You're going to have to navigate a lot of this stuff. And so this is basically the pioneering work you're doing in terms of getting this thing live. So anyways, you still got Bancorp. They're your one last best hope, but now you're way down the priority list. So what does it look like to navigate through that? Well, for a while, I couldn't even get them on the phone, like kind of fall of 2010 was sort of chaos in the prepaid industry, which had actually navigated the financial crisis pretty easily. And we had met Suresh from CBW. This happened in like 2010. And we decided to sign with them. They were completely new to the industry at that point as well. Backstory for those who aren't familiar, Suresh was actually an early technology executive at Google and then bought a bank that he then rebuilt through technology and then became one of the early partners to Scylla. So, you know, you guys found each other, not surprisingly, since you're both trying to do do interesting new things in, in the fintech ecosystem. That was actually the first bank deal we signed was CBW in like late 2010. But as we worked through the partnership in 2011, we realized that they still had a lot of pieces to build. And the problem with the banks, which I think is still very true even today, is that kind of this trade-off between banks who have done a lot of deals and have a lot of experience in the space, which back then was like three and now is maybe like 30, is that they come with a lot of baggage. Right. And they are more expensive and they pretty much insist you fit in like model A or model B, which is the models that they understand. <laughs> but the flip side of it is like if you do fit in model A or model B and you can or you can shoehorn yourself into one of them, they know what they're doing and they have the tech built. They have the processor integrations. They have the all of this that they can just get going. They can tell you like the appeal of working with a new bank is that you get the flexibility that you want. And they're probably much more flexible on things like pricing and structure and, and all of that. But then they don't know what they don't know. And if you don't know what you don't know and they don't know what they don't know, you can go in circles for a while trying to figure out what do we need to do here, right? So we kind of re-engaged with Bancorp in early 2011. And we kind of ran a parallel process for a while where we worked with both CBW and Bancorp. And eventually we got Bancorp to kind of understand that like, hey, we need this product from your checking account wealth management business, and we need the structure of the prepaid card. And here's how we can marry the two of them. We actually yep. ended up signing two separate contracts from two completely different business lines at Bancorp. And we merged those two into one contract <laughs> and signed it. And that was the summer of 2011. And at that point, I thought we had like five, six months to go live. Oh, how wrong yep. that was. Uh, <laughs> and, and then from the, 2011 to 2012, it was just a process of like, you know, are we there yet? <laughs> uh, and it's like, you know, every technology integration thing that we needed to do, every process integration, every document, everything on the plan said this takes one week and that takes two weeks, that ended up taking one month and two months, right? And finally got launched in July of 2012. After you launched, what does it look like? What does it look like to actually start building and scaling the business? By the time we launched, we had almost 200,000 people on our sign-up list. I know people have built millions, but it was quite an achievement, A. And B, after a while, we stopped trying to put more people on the sign-up list because, you know, people, when yeah. they join up to a sign-up list, they expect a product within like a few weeks, a few months. They don't expect to wait two and a half years <laughs> to actually get the product. We had over 25% conversion, raw conversion on that sign-up list. And the biggest problem we had on the sign-up list was, a lot of those people who signed up were in places like Norway and Australia, like all over the world. And we're like, no, we're a US only bank. That was a surprise to me. I actually, I thought that 
banking systems outside the US were in general way better than banking in the US, especially from like a consumer experience. I feel like in banking globally is like, it all sucks. And so we got an amazing conversion and a lot of people signed up. But then we realized that people weren't actually using the product. Everybody would sign up, put in a hundred bucks, get their simple card, but then people would use their card for like five swipes and buying coffee or whatever, and then just never use it again. And that's when we realized that it's one thing to get people to sign up for a cool product that they love. It's actually very hard to get people to switch their primary bank account. And we had a measure of activity, which wasn't just like, hey, monthly active transactions or monthly active users. It looked at like deposits. It looked like card swipes, Mm -hmm. a bunch of other things. And on that metric, in like September of 2012, we were below 15% of all signed up users. We started working on it and we're like, hey, what do we need to do to get customers to actually be active, right? And there wasn't any one thing. The biggest thing that mm-hmm. drove activity was actually when we launched photo check deposit because checks were still a big thing back then. They still are a big thing now. Yep. But it was really like 28 small things that improved conversion. And by summer of 2013, activation on that same metric had gone from like whatever, 14, 15% to over 30%, which on an apples to apples comparison with like the best banks in the US, we were actually right up there. The idea of inactive bank accounts is not just a neobank phenomenon. About 30% of bank accounts across the US are the ones that actually receive the paycheck, which means they're the most active primarily. That means about 70% are to some extent inactive or at least not the primary account that consumers use. So you went from being, you know, well north of that to basically in line with all of your peers, which yeah. is great. But to your point, it was it was a whole bunch of little improvements. In fintech and tech, sometimes you think it's like these big bang ideas, which do really matter, but then there's just a lot of nitty-gritty details that have to be executed correctly to actually get a product working. And so as the product starts working, you do start scaling the several hundred thousand users but you end up deciding to pursue a strategic exit to BBVA. I'd love to hear your talking through that decision process, especially because right now, as a lot of fintech companies are running out of runway, especially there, I feel like a fair number of neobank companies who maybe haven't found the degree of product market fit they want and are also thinking about strategic acquisitions almost a year later today in 2023. So what informed your decision in 2014 to pursue an exit to BBVA? So there was some thought put into it, but so much of it is also just like happenstance, right? So the way that things worked out was we did the Series A in 2010, but in 2011, we raised a Series B and it was an inside round. It was led by Roger Ehrenberg at IA Ventures, essentially, who had also co-led the Series A round. And it was 10 million. And remember, we still hadn't launched at this point when we raised the Series B. We had investors who really, really believed in us. But then when we raised the Series B, we thought we were like four or five months away from launch. In fact, it ended up being almost a year after the Series B that we actually launched and then began to scale. And then we had the whole activation going off a cliff and we had to figure that out. But by the end of 2012, we had begun to figure it out, right? And you could see all the numbers beginning to trend up, but we were also running out of money. So in early 2013, we went out to raise a round And that wasn't a great environment to be trying to raise what was a Series C. And it was because there was a mini tech bust that happened at the end of 2012 because Facebook went public and then its stock cratered. And so suddenly there was a risk off moment in like late 12 and early 13, which feels in some ways similar to what is happening now, right? Like a lot of VCs were willing to talk to us, but nobody was really opening up their checkbook. And now the problem was we had numbers. Before, it was always a vision. It was always a story. Yeah. It was a it was greenfield, right? There was nothing else like simple back then. But then there was something like simple, simple itself. And it had numbers. And you could look at those numbers. And the numbers were kind of interesting, but they weren't <clears throat> like blow you out of the water exciting. Not in early 2013, right? We were still solving our activation issues and still beginning to scale. And we had just scaling barriers, right? Like anytime we onboarded more than 5,000 users a month, we were actually doing KYC through Bancorp and their systems would, would just crash. And we would be like, hey, there's 1,000 people who are in a queue somewhere and haven't even gotten a response for like a week, 
right? And we can yeah. onboard more. We haven't even gotten through our wait list yet. But if we try to onboard faster, that queue of a thousand people is going to become three or four thousand, and they're all going to go and complain on Twitter, and that's going to impact. <laughs> so we couldn't yeah. grow faster, yeah. and and you know we were fixing everything furiously with all our partners. But it wasn't the stratospheric takeoff because it just wasn't possible. We'd have blown up if we had tried to grow any faster than we were. So a lot of frustrations in that early 2013 time period. And then we got a term sheet from Warburg Pincus, actually. And they wanted to put in way more money than we were raising. And they wanted us to go back and get a bank charter. And we were like, well, we put that idea on the shelf back in 2010, but maybe we can make it work now. It's 2012. Times have changed, right? It's fast forward two years and now we have a business, we have a product. And so we were open to it. And that's where I didn't realize that I didn't know enough about the industry is when you get a term sheet from a venture fund, they have done like 98% of the work. They are at conviction, right? And if you sign that term sheet, absent any massive fraud that they uncover in due diligence or something hugely material coming up, they will close that term sheet. In the private equity world, term sheets are just the beginning of discussions, right? You put out a term sheet and then you do your due diligence. And at the end of the term sheet, you actually make a decision whether you're going to go forward with this deal. So not knowing that, Josh and I, we threw all our eggs into the PE basket and we're like, we signed this term sheet, let's kill all our other conversations and dive into due diligence. And at the end of due diligence, Warburg was like, ah, no, nah, we're not going to do this. And we're like, why? And they were like, ah, we just don't think it's a great idea. And we're like, the fuck did you find in due diligence? It's like nothing. <laughs> then we were like, okay, yeah. now we have about three months of runway left at this point. We have less than 50,000 customers, 60, 70 employees, because we built our own customer service team, a whole separate story. And we are like three months of runway and all our conversations that we had started had gone cold. And there was no way we were going to restart those and raise money on time. This is not an uncommon experience for fintech founders dealing with private equity folks who come into venture land. I was at a company where we had a private equity investor do this and basically also killed the company because we made the poor risk decision of relying on it more than we should have. And so do not take private equity investors at face value in the same way you would a venture investor. They have a different model and a different perspective on relationships with founders, et cetera. Completely. So we'd had acquisition interest actually all through the years, everybody from like big banks to like large tech companies, right? And we just always ignored it. Like we went back to our board because what else were we going to do? The board was like, we're all tapped out. We're all early stage investors. We can't write yep. a check this big anyway. There was never any chance that our board could do a series C. And they were like, like, we can scrape together and put a bridge down together or whatever, two, three million maybe. But we can't take a risk on this, right? Like you have to at least look at all the acquisition interest that's coming in, right? And so we did, and we hired a banker and ran a process while Josh and I furiously worked to fix the business and go out and try and raise a round again. And fast forward six months, and in January of 2014, we had an almost closed deal from BBVA. It was a super painful due diligence experience, but we had signed a term sheet with them and it was a good amount, it was 117 million of like cash, right? At the same time, we had a term sheet from one of the best investors in the country to do a CDC and put in like 25 million into the company. If we had gotten that term sheet six months before, we would have signed it. Mm -hmm. But at this point, we'd already gone so far down the acquisition path that we had to be like, can we actually like pull out of this now, right? And Everybody from employees to investors, I mean, investors were making like five, six X returns, right? And and so they were pretty much bought into the sale. And could we back out of it was a serious question. And and maybe we could have. We thought about it for like a day and then we both decided it it just wasn't doable and we should stick with the primary plan that we'd been working on and sign the paperwork and close the deal a few weeks later with BBVA. So first of all, hard decision. It's always a hard decision to pursue you know, an independent business versus part of an acquisition. But sometimes after you know six years of building and hitting all of these roadblocks along the way, it's just time to, to take a little bit of the risk off the table. Would love to hear about how what you learned at Simple then led into what you guys launched at BBVA, the BBA Open Platform. There's also another interesting story there with what became of the BBVA Open Platform. And then we'll start diving into the future too and talking about what you're working on now. So the acquisition with BBVA happened and 
very long story there, but like a few months after the acquisition, I was in Madrid and I was meeting the top executives. And I met one of them and they mentioned this idea of building a platform. They didn't even say API platform initially. And I was like, oh, yes, you should do that. Somebody needs to do this in banking. And, you know, it would be transformation into the industry. So yes, please go do it. And he was like, oh, wait, wait, hold on. Like, this is just an idea we're talking about. It literally was an idea. There wasn't even a deck that somebody had put together. And if you know how big organizations work, if there's no deck, there is nothing, right? So I put together a small document and sent it off with like, hey, here's the do's and here's the don'ts of how to build a platform. And that actually catalyzed them to be like, hey, we're going to spin up an internal venture and start working on this platform. And then they put some people in Spain on it. And those folks came out to Portland and were like, hey, you kind of kick this whole idea off. Would you be on the advisory committee for it? And I was like, sure. And long story short, like a year later, I was running that business. Right. So I moved from Simple to BBVA, which was the parent company, and spent two years living the bank executive life, shuttling between Madrid and Portland and Istanbul and trying to make sure that we weren't going to launch like five different platforms in five different countries at the same time, because <laughs> I knew that there was no way that was ever going to work, yeah. right? Let's try to stick to two, Spain and the US. Let's get those out of the door. Built it, launched it. We were pretty much, I think, the first PSD2 style platform in Europe, if you know what that means. This was before PSD2 was even rolled out. And then we were pretty much the first kind of BAS platform from a bank in the US. 2015, there are basically no BAS platforms. You have the Bank Corp and you have Green Dot and you have some other folks in the prepaid world. Synapse was founded in 2014, but hadn't actually launched anyone on their platform until 2015, maybe 2016. And so this has also now become one of the very first BAS platforms out there. And from founders at the time heard that it was widely considered to have like the best APIs, the best technology. Of course, it's on top of a big bank who isn't necessarily the best at building and maintaining. So talk about, you know, what actually became of the BBVA platform. I do think we built a great tech platform, but we never had control of the underlying bank. We speed. meaning you, some of the ex-simple folks now running BBVA open platform, exactly. as well as the team you build internally. I had two teams, one in Spain and one in the US, but it was kind of generally true of both of them, that we just couldn't get customers live quickly enough and reliably sign them because BBVA had kind of the capacity to sign like six deals a year, maybe. And I wanted to be signing six a month. <laughs> and so we did sign large customers like Google, as an example, but were never able to really like scale that business the way I wanted. And I got frustrated and left in 2017. And I thought about well, what to do with life for a while and decided that I still wanted to solve this problem. I just didn't want to do it the way I was doing it at BBVA. And that's where mm -hmm. the vision for Scylla came together in 2018, met my co-founders, and, and we built and launched it in late 2019, just before the pandemic. And the vision is very similar, right? Like it's to help people program and innovate with money and financial networks. And the idea is that it's just too hard to build financial applications. And if you could build financial applications as easily as you build like you know, an advertising application or whatever, there would be a lot more of them. Yeah. And in general, that would be good for the world. And we are a BAS platform in that we sit on top of a bank. Our current bank partner is Evolve Bank and Trust, although we have a few more in the pipeline. And the kind of the difference between the BBVA open platform and Scylla now is that at Scylla, we have been just a lot more focused. So at BBVA open platform was built for Simple so that Simple could transition mm -hmm. to using it. And Simple was kind of my biggest customer back then. But at Scylla, we, I don't think we have any neobank customers at all. We, we're a mile deep in the ACH space and we focus a lot on ACH payments, but we mm -hmm. also like we don't do card issuing at all. And that's kind of bread and butter for neobanks. We partner with folks like Lithic on card issuing and we have a wide partnership network. But we have strayed through to like, hey, we need that ledger, we need the compliance infrastructure that powers it all and allows customers to get live, and then the deep expertise in ACH behind it. And got launched in 2019, grew nicely to over 3 million in revenue now. The last six months, last 12 months really, have been slow for sure. And, and the industry is going through this like whole, I think it's a double whammy actually of like both the 
VC bust where there was a super hype in 2021 and now we're going through the kind of the crash on the other side of it. And also a huge amount of regulatory focus on the industry. That I think is being driven more by the crypto bust and not necessarily anything directly related with fintech. But then a lot of the crypto businesses were built with some of the same underlying structures, the, you know, FBO accounts and a lot of the same partner banks as fintech was built on, right? The regulatory pressure on crypto is definitely affecting everybody in the financial services industry and definitely fintech as well. So that has slowed down growth a lot in the last six, 12 months. But we, you know, we raised a series A and we raised some more money at the start of the year and still are doing fine. And really our focus is now on helping our customers grow and scale and get through this period. I'd love to hear your perspective on what you think is the future for neobanks, but then also more broadly for banking as a service platforms, which, as is the case with Scylla, neobanks actually are not at all a part of the major revenue drivers or major partnerships for the banking as a service platforms. Because on one hand, it seems like neobanks have been very, very challenged in the current economic climate and public markets and private markets. But it also seems crazy that the big banks with their static products are still going to be the main way that consumers bank for the next decade. So what do you see as the future of both neobanking, banking, and then also what that means for the banking as a service platforms over the next, you know, three, five, even 10 years? So first of all, it's important to just put this in perspective. And like the global financial services industry is about a 20 trillion revenue industry. That's out of a global GDP of like 100 trillion. By contrast, I think advertising is like a 600 billion revenue industry. So financial services is like 30 times larger than advertising, which when you think about it, makes sense, right? And tech, the first thing it transformed completely, I think, was advertising in the 90s and early 2000s. Obviously, content and media have been transformed as well. Financial services is going to be completely transformed by technology, but it's not going to happen on the same timeline as those. First of all, it is just larger. It's like orders of magnitude larger and more complex. And it is heavily, heavily regulated. When the first cables were laid out to India in, I think, the 80s, and then the internet came to India in the 90s, the Indian government wasn't like focused on trying to regulate like email and kind of the bulletin boards that we were using back then. (laughs) The internet spread and grew a lot due to sort of the benign neglect of governments who didn't really care much about tech, which was a tiny, tiny sector of the the world. And what does it matter? Everybody knows that money matters. No government is going to like let go of the purse strings and say, hey, come into my country, launch whatever fintech you want, launch whatever crypto you want, completely bankrupt all my existing financial systems. And (laughs) this is what I'm looking forward to. No, that's just not happening. Right. Uh, And we saw it. I think the best example of it was... uh, Facebook's attempt to get a stable coin off, uh, they called it Libra and then renamed it a couple of times. When they announced it, there was almost this like collective outcry from every finance minister and central banker across the world, which was over my dead body. (laughs) We are going to not let this happen using every tool at our book. And they succeeded and Facebook never got that off the ground. Facebook already controlled social media. Nobody wanted them to control finance either. So this transformation is going to take a while. My estimate right now is that fintech and crypto, all of it, everybody from PayPal to Scylla in the last 25 years are less than 2% of global financial services right now. I think that's really worth driving home is some people like, oh, it's like fintech over as a category. And you're like, okay, 100 trillion GDP, 20 trillion-ish, depending on how you define it in financial services, 1% to 2% of that touched by the big, successful fintechs of our day. So like, no, <laughs> like fintech is, has a lot more work to do. Oh, by the way, have you used a bank recently? Like, <laughs> it probably wasn't or, or, the best experience. Or an insurer or a wealth manager or done an international payment recently. I'm like, all of these things were broken 15 years ago. They've gotten better, but I would still classify them in the broken category for the majority of people. And so this decade, I think we're going to grow from like the 1% it was in 2020 to 10% by 2030. 
and that's huge. That's a 10x growth yeah. in revenue for the yeah. industry as a whole. And it's not a small industry. Yeah. We're already in the hundreds of billions in, in revenue for the whole industry. But we're talking about 20 trillion yeah. as kind yeah. of the size. So we're still just on that trajectory, right? And so even in 2031, most Americans will bank and buy insurance and do everything in pretty much the same way, in fact, using a lot yeah. of the same code from the same large institutions as they did in 2000. This is with 10x industry growth in this decade, right? Yeah. I expect the whole thing to transform and maybe by the time I die and I expect to live a good long life. Yeah. Like my goal for the industry transformation is like in the 2050s. And it's just that large and it's that slow moving. And as yep. you get bigger, you get much more regulatory focus. So I think just we need to temper expectations from people. But at the same time, I'm like, there isn't that many larger prizes to go after. I mean, what do you do once you take over social media and make yourself into like the top five richest person on the planet? Well, you try yeah. to take over the world of money because there isn't anywhere yeah. with more money than that. Yeah. It did work out for Zuckerberg and Facebook, but there is a reason they went after it because it's just so obvious that, hey, the world of finance is broken. And it needs a lot of fixing. Yeah. And as a fintech investor, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited is because I agree. I think it's like 1% to 2% penetrated. And then one way I think about why the opportunity still remains is just the people tackling this problem have gotten so much more capable, knowledgeable, and informed, and have such better tools. So for example, you, Shamir, and using you as a stand-in for all the other entrepreneurs and operators who have been building in financial services in the last decade, it's like, would I rather back you... Now, like I only do pre-seed and seed. So like, let's say you started a new company for some reason, or I'd rather back simple. Well, backing simple in 2009, it was kind of crazy. It's like, how are you going to build this? Who are you going to hire? I don't have a bank partner. What is the business model? Like there are all these huge existential questions. Whereas today, if someone or someone like you goes to start something new, they've got a decade of experience in banking and in technology. They have like a deep pool of talent to pull on. They have a huge Rolodex of potential investors to go and reach out to. And the market is 98% still there. <laughs> and so yes. it's like now actually seems like a much better and easier time to be doing fintech investing than a decade ago. And so even though we haven't seen some of these big changes, it seems like we've got to start feeling some material shifts this decade. Yeah, It's 1% to 2% overall, but there are sectors that are going to be transformed in this decade, right? Because it's not even, right? And yeah. so one of the things like international remittances as a business has completely changed. And it had changed already in the 2000s with like, you know, Western Union and MoneyGram getting big in that space, but it was a very small sector. Now, if you look at like folks like Wise and yep. World Remit and so many other companies, they're transforming it again. And I suspect there is, there's still like another 10x to go here, but you'll start seeing that like for banks in the UK, as an example, making money off international wires isn't really possible anymore. That business line yeah. died two, three years yeah. ago. It's going to happen to a lot of other people. And so we'll see that in particular sectors where it's, it's 10% yeah. across, but it's like 50 plus in some, right? And that's where you'll really see the change. But I also think some really large sectors like mortgages and stuff are going to struggle. This yeah. decade, though, I think it's actually better for a few things. It's like the best time to be doing tech investing was not 99, it was 2002. And mm -hmm. if you could invest in 2002 to 2005, between like 06 and 15, you had great outcomes, right? Yeah. And I think that's the same thing that's happening now. We got you know, the hype got ahead of itself in 2021, and now we are on the bust. Just like the internet kept growing for the last 20 years, right? The dot-com boom and bust didn't yeah. affect the underlying. The same thing is going to keep happening here. Yeah. One of my goals for this conversation is come back, like, what is the legacy of neobanks and pioneering neobanks, like Simple? And I think the legacy is that they help build out and prove some of the infrastructure level for fintech, which a lot of the future fintech companies are going to benefit from, even if they have nothing to do with consumer banking. So for example, you said, you know, you don't even support card issuance, although you do have partnerships where you can do that. And most of your businesses are doing fundamentally different things. You also mentioned like insurance. I have like a dental insurance claims administration company that's in the portfolio. Right now, 80% gross margin. They just do the claims administration. It's just a data problem. Eventually they'll get into the money movement component of that. That'll open up and expand their business model. When they do that, I know there is a rich substrate of potential partners to help them do that money movement. 
maybe Scylla, for example. Exactly. And Scylla exists because of the infrastructure that was originally built for neobanks. So the legacy of neobanks may, in fact, have nothing to do with infrastructure for consumer, but just infrastructure more broadly that other folks can build on. And by the way, Tentel Claims Administration is like a huge category with very little software that needs a lot of improvements. And that's just like one small subpart of that $20 trillion industry we're talking about. So I'm curious too, uh, you know, as we're wrapping up, I do have one question I like to ask of all the entrepreneurs, which is, you know, you've been a, an innovator and entrepreneur within fintech and financial services for over a decade now. There are a lot of folks within the Cambrian community, folks who are listening to this podcast, who are thinking about, you know, maybe starting something on their own. I'm curious what advice you would have for folks who are thinking about making that leap and starting something in financial services that could be general advice or even just thinking about certain areas you think are ripe for more and better solutions that they could potentially build. So we're talking in June of 2023, right? And there's all these things that you need to line up for a successful startup, even to just get it launched, forget like, you know, scaling it and growing it and getting to some meaningful outcome. You need the people, you need the capital, you need the consumers, you need to build a product and you need to get the product market fit. Of all of those things, I don't think the consumers have gone anywhere and the problems haven't gone away magically. They're they're pretty pretty (laughs) much the same as they were two, three years ago. Maybe some small sectors are more competitive, but there's lots and lots of white space still out there, right? Like dental claims. So I think the consumers are out there and the problems are out there and you can build a product and get to product market fit. It is no harder to do than it was two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. What has changed, got up and down in the last five years is the availability of capital. I mean, there was a fintech sector in like 2012, yep. 2014 to like 2020. It grew nicely. Then there was like a bit of a downturn at the start of the pandemic, then a huge boom in 21. And now we are going through the bust period of that. That said, think, you did a $2.6 million Series A in 2010, 2011. There are still Series A's getting done today. Still six yeah. to ten million dollars or, or more you know yeah. more than twice as I, I big as, as your series a completely and i think like there is still capital availability it's not zero it's, it's harder than it was in 21 but then 21 was probably the most easily available capital in the last like couple of decades at least it's only bad in comparison to 21 not in comparison to any time period before better than any other point in time <laughs> if you can build a solid team and you have a vision for a product that solves a fundamental problem for a lot of people I still think this is a great time and maybe better than most other times to go out and start something. If you're thinking about it, don't think that this is a bad time. It's probably a great time. The only thing is raising capital is going to be harder than it was in 21. So much of getting things right in startup land is timing. And I think arguably simple was too early, but being too early that you paved, maybe, maybe not. Maybe like if you had just one more turn, some other random things happened, maybe, you know, things would have turned out differently. But but now, as we talked about, 98% of the opportunity is still there. Capital is still there. So it's still great from a timing perspective to start something. Especially in this industry, I don't think there's going to be a bad time for it like in most sectors for like a decade. So really it's, it comes back to like, can you build that product? Can you overcome the myriad challenges, especially regulatory, which is very specific to financial services? And can you go out and sell this to consumers? And it's not trivial. Like you still have to work on product market fit once you get through all the other barriers and can you build a team to do that? Those challenges are still out there and there's still a great time to go out and start something. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on, Shamir. It's been awesome having you. I always enjoy chatting with you. And thanks for sharing the story of Simple, Scylla, and then also some advice for entrepreneurs. My pleasure, Rex. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Shamir. Always enlightening to talk to someone, especially someone who's been at it as long as Shamir has, all the way back from 2009, building one of the very first neobanks to now building a new banking as a service platform. If you'd like to listen to more content like this, please hit like and subscribe. Thanks again so much for joining, and we hope to catch you next time.